Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. I've entitled the message uh, this morning to be like Jesus. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I think our very presence here, each and every one of us, indicates that we all want to be like Jesus. Isn't that right? That's our purpose. That's how we can reflect his character. I want to spend some time today to see how we can be like Jesus, if we are really like Jesus. And if not, what we can do to make sure that we are like Jesus. I want us to leave this place like Jesus, not unlike him. And I want us to begin with a beautiful parable that we want to look at and spend some time today that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 22. So if you are blessed enough to have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we will read through this parable, and then we will spend some time just analyzing some thoughts that are contained in this parable that Jesus spoke, and we will see what we can learn. Matthew chapter 22, and we will begin with verse 1, and the word of God here says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat things are killed and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. In this parable, we have a very interesting story that applies over a huge period of time that extends all the way to the end. I want us to spend some time 
looking at some thoughts that are in this parable just quickly and see how that speaks to us today. First of all, there are a number of different sections in this parable that we want to explore together. But first of all, we want to understand who was Jesus speaking to in this parable? To the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the elders and the, the leaders of the Jewish people. In particular, when it says in verse 1, and he spoke, uh, answered and spake unto them again. The them there is referring to those leaders of the Jewish people. But this parable is not only for the Jews. It's for all of us. But it has a particular application that Jesus was making to the Jewish people that we want to see the meaning of. This parable is not just limited to them. It also extends to the Gentiles and it covers a huge span of time. The feast, the wedding feast here, of course, refers to a union. That's what a marriage is, isn't it? It's a union. It's a union between Christ and his people, his bride. It's a union of humanity and divinity. That's what the marriage feast represents. And according to this parable, the chief concern that Christ had was really the response of all those who were invited. There are a number of different responses in this parable. And one of them will be a response that you and I make. This is what we want to examine. Christ was mainly concerned with the different responses that are brought out in this parable, and it's the responses that make all the difference for those who are either in or out of the wedding. What is our response? The responses in this parable, some of them prove to be deadly in their nature. And it's important for us to make sure that when we are invited to the wedding together, wedding feast, when we are guests in the wedding, it's important for us to make sure that we respond in the right way. Because there's only one other alternative, only one other option. And one very deceptive response we want to spend some time looking at as well. But let's analyze the parable just a little bit and look at the three natural sections that come out. The first section is from verse 1 down to verse 7, of course, where Christ is specifically concerned with the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, and all those who were under them, all those who were represented by the Jewish nation. Of course, in verse 2, it tells us the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. Who does the king represent? God the Father. He made a marriage for his son. The son is... Christ. This is something that God has done. And he sends out a call in verse 3. He sends out a call to those who were already invited. Now that's interesting. This is not the invitation. The call is sent out to those who were already bidden to the wedding to tell them to come. You see, it was a custom in the East when a royal dignity or someone of high rank put on a feast or a wedding, not only would they send invitations, but they would also send reminders, send their servants, make sure you come to the wedding. There's one week left. Make sure you come to the wedding. There's two days left. This was a custom. And here we see this is brought out and the king tells his servants to go out and call those who were invited to come to the wedding because it is ready. What's the first response 
they would not come. Christ was here speaking to the Jewish nation. They were invited to the wedding feast to work together with God, and the Jews constantly refused the call to come to the wedding. But this king is kind and patient and long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. What does he do? He sends his servants out again. He doesn't take no for an answer. He sends them out again and he persists in his mercy. He says, no, I need you to go and actually tell them that everything is ready. In verse 4, he sent other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. This is a very important point. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. This is what the king has done. Everything in the marriage is already prepared and it's all ready. All the people had to do was come. The only thing the people had to do was just respond to the invitation. Isn't that right? That's an important principle because the same invitation goes out to us. And the king says, all things are ready, just come to the wedding. These people had nothing to do to contribute to the wedding in any way, shape or form. All they, all they had to do was just come and attend. And of course, the disciples of the Lord worked with Jesus in giving this invitation to the Jewish nation. The invitation about the kingdom of God, which is like a marriage, and inviting the people to come to the wedding. That's the gospel invitation. That's the invitation to come to that wedding that has already been prepared. You see, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? It says at the beginning of the, of the parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And we know that in the preaching of Jesus, when he began to preach, the Bible says, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The wedding is here. The same thing he told his disciples to, when they got to preach. He told them, when you go preach and tell the people what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the wedding invitation for the Jewish nation. But then we have the sad tragedy, the miserable response that we find in verse 5. Notice what happens now. It says, they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. What does it mean when it says they made light of it? Okay, ridiculed it. That's right. many answers. That's good. They scoffed at it. They did not regard it with the importance it deserves. Didn't take it seriously. They reviled it. I want you to notice something here. This is a principle that comes out in the behavior of the Jews that is really human behavior. What was the first response that they had? First response was they ignored them they refused to come. Here we see another response was the response now. Ridicule and scoffing. There's something interesting in human nature. When truth comes your way and you ignore it, when it comes again the second time, you will despise it. You will ridicule it. So be careful of that first step of rejection. It's very dangerous. And we'll see how dangerous it was because the Jews made light of the Messiah, 
They made light of the invitation of mercy. And this response really shows a growing hardness. There was a growing hardness. And uh, many, in a most scornful manner, rejected the invitation of mercy that Christ gave through his disciples. So much so that this progressed. In verse 6, what happened? It says, and the remnant, who's the remnant? The last generation of the Jews to hear the invitation to the wedding. See, God has been inviting the Jewish nation from their inception to come to the marriage feast, to partake of his invitation that they might be witnesses to him, to also give the invitation to others. And all through time, they rejected, they despised, and down to the very end, it says here, they took his servants and entreated them, entreated them spitefully and slew them. Now this is a very interesting response. We know this happened when the persecution of the early church occurred. The people who were spearheading the persecution were the? The Jews, isn't that right? Isn't that amazing? It wasn't the Gentiles, it wasn't the pagans. It was God's chosen people. They slew the messengers and servants of God. This rejection is a third hardening. This is what would happen. When the truth comes your way the first time and you ignore it, the next time you will ridicule it, the next time it comes, you will fight against it. And you will attack it. That's the spiritual blindness that occurred to the Jews. Be very careful what you do with the invitation, with truth. It can harden us to a point where we will slay the messenger. What happened to them? In the verse 7, of course, is destruction. The Jews sealed their rejection of God's mercy. As a result, God's protection was withdrawn and the army of Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem. God did not reject the Jews, did he? They rejected him and this brought destruction upon them. The downward path to destruction began with one decision to ignore the invitation to come. That's what actually began the whole process. And that led them on from one hardness to another. So let us beware of the lesson of the Jews. It's very important for us. Christ was speaking to these people and he was prophesying to them in this parable what will take place. And that's exactly what took place. This was about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. But it did not have to be that way for the Jews. You see, when we uh, reject truth, it does something to us that we don't really understand fully. It allows Satan to take more control of us. You see, I've had opportunities where I've shared truth with people, and, and it's interesting how you see this progression of responses with the same people, which shows us that this is human nature. First of all, people are not really interested. After a while, you share again, perhaps people start making fun of what you're trying to say. They start mocking you. And before long, the same people who rejected truth time and again, they begin to slay the messengers. You know what the slaying, you know what slaying the messengers does? It prevents the invitation from going to others. 
So not only will we not come, not only will we mock it, but we will attack the means whereby others can also come to the truth. You understand? We will assassinate the messengers. And thereby, not only will we not go, but everybody else will not get to hear about it. Perhaps that's not how they think, but someone in the background, this is how he's thinking. And this is how he is influencing people to behave. We see that very clearly in the example of the Jews, where people will take their guns, so to speak, their spiritual guns, and start attacking the message of truth. So beware, lest we be found like that. Let's keep going. Verse 8 begins the next section, where now we see the story continues and takes in a broader scope, widening now from the Jews. And this broader scope comes a lot closer to us. This is a lot closer to home. The king in his mercy does not cancel the wedding. Praise God. Here is a wedding with all the guests not wanting to come. What would you do? Cancel the wedding. Perhaps that's how we would do the, what we would do, but the king doesn't cancel the wedding. He says, okay, we have another plan. I want you now to go out to the highways and byways and bring everyone in. This invitation represents the wide invitation that now goes out to all the Gentiles. The Jews rejected, but God did not. He continues inviting and the invitation goes out to the Gentiles. In verse 8, it says that they were to uh, go because they which were bidden were not worthy. Why were they who were bidden not worthy? They rejected the call to come. And that proved that they were unworthy. Now it says here, also in verse 8, it emphasizes the point that we talked about earlier. It says, he said to his servants, the wedding is what? Ready. The wedding is ready, it's all complete. This is a really significant point. The work of the gospel and the work of salvation is all ready. Amen. And there is an invitation for us to come. You see, we come to a wedding that is ready. We don't come to help in preparing the wedding. We don't come to help cook the food. We don't come and help set up. We don't come and help organize. We don't come and do some last minute preparations for the wedding. We come to a wedding that is ready. That's very significant for us. Because we, by nature, have a tendency of wanting to help. You know, bless our hearts, we love to help. But this love to help is very dangerous because this is really self saying, I want a part in the wedding and in preparing the wedding. This is really what the gospel is all about. And I want us to think on these things. We do not assist or contribute to the wedding in any way, shape, or form. We come to a wedding that is ready. And this is something worth keeping in mind. Let's go to verse nine and see what else happens here. It says, go therefore to the highways, and as many as he shall find, bid, to the marriage. Here is a call to the Gentiles. As many as shall be found. This is a wide, universal invitation. As many as you can find, bring to the marriage. And so everyone is invited. We find in verse 10, those servants went out into the highways, gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished 
with guests. Everyone is invited, so much so that the wedding now is full. We have a full house. Praise the Lord. The wedding is full of guests. But there's something I want us to pay careful attention to. I want you to keep in the back of your mind. We're going, home. We're going to come back to it. It says here they invited two kinds of people. Isn't that right? What are the two kinds? Good and bad. And they all came to the wedding. I want us to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. Now we have a wedding that is full of guests. And there's something interesting in this arrangement. As part of the preparations for this wedding, the king had a very interesting setup. You see, for each guest, the king had prepared a very special garment. That it was part of the invitation for each guest to come, they must wear the garment specially provided for them. This garment was a gift from the king. It wasn't a garment that they brought with them. It wasn't a garment that they contributed to in any way, shape or form. It was a garment fully prepared by the king that each guest had to put on, thereby showing respect and reverence to the king. This was also a custom in the East. Of course, Christ was referring to something that the people were familiar with. When somebody of importance invited guests, it was many times the custom to provide special garments for them to attend this gathering, this feast, this wedding, whatever it might be. And it was considered a grave insult to refuse the garment that is provided by the host. And we see that coming out in the parable. But you see, this parable is speaking about our invitation, each and every one of us today. And it's speaking about which garment we will have. Because it's this garment, really, that makes us like Jesus. This is really what the parable is about. And this is where it comes home to each and every one of us today. So wedding garments are for all. And of course, one of these terms of the invitation is that they must all don these wedding garments. As far as the king is concerned, it doesn't matter who's good or who's bad. Everyone needs a garment, isn't that right? Now this is very significant. The king doesn't, doesn't care where you come from, what your background is, whether it might be good or bad. As far as the king is concerned, every single one needs a garment. Now that's significant because that touches close to home. And the only garment that the king accepts is the garment that he provides. You see, this wedding has some very serious conditions of entry. This party has some serious conditions of entry. The king will accept no other garment except the one he provides. Now let's go to the next section and see where it really comes close to home. Personally now to each and every one of us. And it's here that I want to spend some time in the little time that we have, it's running fast, and see what we can glean from this parable. Verse 11, notice what takes place here. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. 
Here is a man that doesn't have a wedding garment. Now this type of man obviously responded to the invitation to come, isn't that right? He came to the wedding, but he came to the wedding on his own terms, on his own conditions. He did not accept the garment that was offered. He had his own garment. This man must have thought that his garment was not too bad. His garment was good enough. My garment would impress the king. Wait till he sees it. I don't need that garment at the door. Thank you very much. I have my own. This is really what Jesus is saying between the lines. You understand what I'm saying? And this is important because, brothers and sisters, this parable is written for you and me, not just for the Jews. This parable is dealing with a very deep-seated problem in our human nature that prevents us from really partaking in the wedding feast. And this is a problem that Jesus is bringing out for us here. You see, this parable had three classes of people. The first group were the Jews, were the open rejectors. Isn't that right? They didn't even bother coming. They said, no thanks, it's your wedding, we're not interested. And if you keep bothering us, we're going to kill your servants. And that's what they did. Total rejectors of the invitation of mercy. Class number two is those who accept the invitation. And class number three is who? Those who accept the invitation on their own terms, with three classes. Now I can safely say that none of us here are in the first category. Is that right? The fact that we're here today means somehow we have made some acceptance of the invitation. So that leaves only two categories that we can be in. We either, either we are in the one or the other. And this is the thing. In the Gospel Feast, there are two groups of people that have accepted the invitation. Some have come on their own terms. Some have come on the terms of the King. The question today is this. Which one are you? Which one am I? Because we all think that we have come on the terms of the King. Because we like to think so. That's something that's natural to us. But I want us to really examine our hearts today and see, are we really in this wedding phase on our own terms or on the terms of the king fully? This is what I want us to spend time looking at. And the sad thing is that this condition is most deceptive. It is so deceptive, it caused this man to be destroyed just like that. Jews. Now what a loss. They didn't even bother come, coming to the wedding, but this man heard the invitation. He responded. He came. He showed up to the wedding, but his end was the same as those who had openly rejected. Now that's a grave, grave deception that we want to uncover. Notice what it says in the next verse, verse 12. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? The king sounds surprised. The, the, the king comes in and examines the guest, and the one thing that stands out above all others is this man in his own garments. And the king goes to him and says, Friend, how are you here without a garment? 
There is something about the appearance of the man and the presence of the man in that condition that startles the king. Now what is this, uh, what does it mean when it talks here about the king coming in to see the guests? What does that represent? A work of examination, a work of judgment. Now this is taking place right now, where the king is examining the guests. And the guests are all of us, we're all here, isn't that right? So I want us to picture ourselves as guests sitting in the marriage feast of the king, and the king is going to examine today and see who has on the wedding garment. And more importantly, who doesn't have the wedding garment. You see, it's one thing to come to the wedding, it's another thing to have the wedding garment on. And there are so many people who are at the wedding who think that they have the garment on when they really don't have it. They think their garment is good enough, but when they're asked, they will be speechless like the man was. As it says there at the end of uh, verse 12, and he was Speechless. Why was he speechless? No excuse. He was self-condemned, wasn't he? He was self-condemned. When the king asked him, he realized that he had not really honored the king. He might as well have not bothered coming to the wedding feast. He was speechless. His refusal to accept what the king had graciously offered proved to be his self-condemnation. Let's analyze a few other aspects here just quickly because this comes down home to us. You see how long this parable is stretching in time from the Jews all the way down to the very end at the time of judgment or the time of examination. We're living in that time right now. And the time will come when the next verses will also go into effect. Verse 13 says, Then said the king, to the servant, bind him hand and foot, and cast him out into outer darkness, where there will be destruction, where there will be a loss to those who did not comply with the conditions of the invitation. Now that, that time is soon coming, so this parable is really not finished just yet. Praise God for that. Praise God for that, because you know what? There are many of us who are like this man in the wedding. And that's what we want to explore just a little bit. But first of all, let's ask the question, what is this wedding garment? Everything is hinging on the wedding garment in the closing part of the parable. What is the wedding garment? Amen. Everyone knows Christ's righteousness. Praise the Lord. Let's look at some passages that tell us that Let's go, leave your finger there or your marker in Matthew. We might come back there. Let's go to Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 61. And we will just quickly here look at a few passages. To see what the word of the Lord says. Isaiah 61. And we will look at verse 10. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. And Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Here is the language of a wedding again. And the garment here is said to be what? A robe of righteousness. It's a garment of salvation. Righteousness and salvation. Who gives this garment and this robe? God, the king. And so this is the, this is the imagery that Christ was using. And the uh, Pharisees, the people listening to him, would, would have been familiar with this passage. What this is representing. It's the righteousness that God gives. And the source of, of this righteousness is the king himself. Let's go to Isaiah 54. You see the foundation here because this is an aspect that is so misunderstood today by all of us at one point or another in our experience. Isaiah chapter 54. And we will look there at verse 17. Isaiah chapter 54 the Bible says in verse 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is the last part we're going to focus on. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Remember, everything in the wedding was already prepared and ready, including the garments. That's why God says, I will clothe you with this garment. This righteousness is really of me. And I don't want you to ever forget that. That's significant for us. Their righteousness is of me. That's why in the book of Revelation, if you turn there, let's have a look at how this is brought out in the end. And this is where we come into the picture very clearly. Revelation 19. We will look at verse 8. Notice carefully here how this is worded. It's important for us to rightly divide the word of truth. Revelation 19 verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is what? The righteousness of who? The righteousness of the saints. Now how does that work? Is the righteousness the righteousness of the saints, or is the righteousness the righteousness of God? Is it 50-50? 40-60, which one? Okay, see this is very significant. What does it mean when the scripture here says it's the righteousness of the saints? Well, we need to ask the question, where do the saints get it from? From God. It, they make it their own and they put it on, thereby becoming personally and individually theirs, but it's whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Their righteousness, he says, is of me. Okay, that's one way of putting it. Thank you, his breath in them. Now, this is significant, very significant for us. The man in the wedding feast who didn't have the garment on thought that he had enough of his righteousness. Now, none of us think that here, of course, do we? I don't need to ask for a show of hands, but do we really? That's the question. See, the man really was very secure in having his own garments on. And it wasn't until the king came and had a look at him. 
Everybody else in the uh, feast probably didn't even notice. That's interesting. You know, I'm a brother and sister. We can look at each other. All look as righteous as each other. But the king can see. This is very significant for us. This righteousness is really nothing but the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, which is obtained by the saints, it becomes theirs. But it's not anything that they produced. It's not anything that they came up with, because the wedding is already ready. This is none other than the unblemished character of the Savior. This robe of righteousness is the character. And last night we learned what character is made up of. What's it made up of? Thoughts and feelings. This character, this robe of righteousness comes from Jesus completely. The Spirit of Prophecy were told that this garment is woven in the loom of heaven and doesn't have one thread of human device. You know what that means? If there is one thread in the garment you're wearing that is of human devising, you are wearing the wrong garment. One thread. That's significant. Let's see what this righteousness or where this righteousness comes from. Let's go to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3. I want to challenge you to really think in your heart of where you have got in your garments. Romans chapter 3. And we will look here at verses 21 and 22. Romans 3, reading from verse 21. Paul the Apostle says, But now the righteousness of God, that's what we're talking about, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. So this righteousness doesn't come from the doesn't come from the law. It's the righteousness of God without the law. It's manifested, it's revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What is it? Here it is, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. This righteousness was worked out and accomplished and manifested by Christ. It comes to us from Christ. It doesn't come to us from the, from the law. But it is witnessed by the law. The law is not done away with. The law stands as a witness. It stands to testify that this righteousness is indeed acceptable and harmonious with God's requirements. But it doesn't produce or generate that righteousness. That comes solely and completely from Christ. And it comes, it says, upon all that do what? That believe. See, brothers and sisters, this is righteousness by faith. This is what the garment really is. The invitation to the wedding feast is to come and accept the invitation and is to accept the righteousness of the king by faith. It is so simple. And yet so many of us are finding it so complicated and hard. 
Let's see what 1 Corinthians says in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice what Christ has made to us. And this is an aspect that I, I really want you to think honestly with your own heart. I want to challenge you today because it is so easy. It is so easy for us to think that we're okay. Because we're sitting here. Because we say amen in the meeting. Because we sing. Because we know we do all these things that are good. It's so easy to deflect the message. This must be about this brother or this sister here. I'm all right. So I want to challenge you to really think and examine your heart carefully today. Amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1. Notice what it says in verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It says, but of him, that's the father here. Are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Here is that righteousness we're talking about. And what else? Sanctification. And what else? And redemption. Everything is in Christ, and everything is complete, and everything is ready. You see, we have a tendency many times to separate between justification and sanctification. We get really theological, we really good, get good with our definitions, and this one's over here, this one's over there, and in the process, we lose sight of Jesus. There are many people, and I know this for a fact, who understand that justice, uh, justification and righteousness is indeed from Christ, and they receive it from Christ. But sanctification is their contribution. And I know this for a fact. I want you to think. You say, well, no, no, I, of course, don't think that. Well, you might not think that in those words. But the fruit reveals how we think. We can't argue with that. The man could say, well, I'm okay, I'm fine, and put up a really good argument about his garment. But when the king came in, he was speechless. You see, many times we think and consider that Christ gives us righteousness as a head start. And we keep going and say, thank you, Lord. I'll take it from here. And we run because sanctification is that. Well, every good Adventist can recite the quote, sanctification is the work of a lifetime, brother. We're working on our sanctification. I'll tell you what, Christ is our sanctification. Amen. And the same way you obtained his righteousness is the same way you obtain his. You know what sanctification really is? It's ongoing righteousness. It's not something different. It's not an add-on. It's not like something says, here's a little, Christ says, here's a little bit, and now you need to get the rest. That's called sanctification. It's gonna take you a lifetime. Get working. You know, there are many people who think that way. Sanctification is by faith. Everything is complete in Jesus Christ. Everything. He is the garment. If that garment has one thread, my brother or my sister, one thread of human devising, that garment is totally and completely rejected by God. That's a very close call. Now notice how this garment is, is, how this is brought out in Romans chapter 13. Let's go back there to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. This righteousness, this sanctification, this redemption by faith. Notice how Christ is all and in all. Romans 13 and verse 14. Paul here, the apostle, in closing this book, says in verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is really the garment. He is the righteousness. And He is the sanctification. And He is the redemption. And He is the glory. You know, we don't give Christ all the credit that He deserves. We desperately want some credit for the wedding. That's human nature. Just a little bit. Lord, I did. Lord, I am doing. We're not fully putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of people staring at me with a funny look in their eyes. But do you know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters? I'm really being honest here because this is a problem that has plagued God's people from day one. We want to contribute somehow, some way, even a little way, to the wedding. And God says, no, it's ready. All you have to do is come on my terms. And if you come on your terms, I am sorry, but I am going to have to evict you from the wedding. That's a serious, serious call. Self, brothers and sisters, does not want to die. It was mentioned already in the steps of Christ that brings it up brings this out clearly. Self is the greatest enemy that we have to fight with. Self is, self wants some recognition. Self wants to do something. I did something. I kept the Sabbath every week. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness and our sanctity. He is the whole lot. And he, if, if he is not the whole lot for you, you are on dangerous ground. And I warn you as a brother, as a sister, you know what? Because we have this plague all the time. It's human nature. Every day we must put on the garment of Christ's righteousness by faith. That no flesh should glory in anything that we do, but we are to glory where? In the Lord, in His righteousness. You know, it does something for us when we understand righteousness by faith. It takes a big weight off our shoulders. We have a big weight called perform or you will cop it. Get with the program or you're out. We have this weight and it's big, it's a heavy weight. And you know, some people are struggling trying to bear this weight. Some people are so struggling because they keep messing up, keep blowing it, that they are well nigh giving up. Because this big weight is on their shoulders, they must do. Brothers and sisters, I want to introduce you to the righteousness of Christ. It is complete. It is complete in Him. Christ doesn't say, I want you to help me save you. He says, I want you to let me save you. I've already done it for you. Please accept it. And accepting it will make a difference. There's no question about that. But we have a skewed way of thinking because we're human beings. And I'm not talking to you like I'm here on the other side. I'm in the same boat with you. We all have this skewed way of thinking. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this complete righteousness. And when we are arrayed in Christ, brothers and sisters, completely, it's the only way that we can be like Jesus. There is no other way. The pure spotless character which his followers will have is the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Bible talks about in Jeremiah. It says that they, this is the name whereby he will be called the Lord, our Righteousness, complete. All of our righteousness comes from the Lord. It doesn't come 
from here anywhere anywhere else. What about our garments? We're just speeding up here. What about our garments? What was the garment that this man was wearing? What do you think? The garment of self-righteousness. Well, none of us here suffer from that problem, do we? The garment of self-righteousness. The Bible talks about it. It calls it what? Filthy rags. We all know the verses, don't we? We know the verses, but what do the verses mean in our practical experience day by day? The Bible says in Isaiah 4, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is filthy rags. And we have to put that into the formula, because in Revelation, it talks about the righteousness of the saints. But that's not filthy rags. So that tells us where they got it from. They got it from Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. And that's why Paul says, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in, in vain. What is it about this filthy rags that we are so obsessed with that we don't want to put it off? We have an obsession with these filthy rags. Can it be possible that anyone sitting here today is without their wedding garment? Is that possible? Now the next question is this. Is that person you? I don't want you to answer. I want you to think. I really want you to think, brothers and sisters. Is that person you? The sad fact of the matter is uh, most of us are really in the same position that this man was in. We are without the wedding garment. You see, we talked earlier about those two classes of people that came to the wedding. They were good and good and bad. Are there good and bad people? I want you to think carefully. Are there good and bad people? Jesus was asked a question one day. A young man came to him and said, yeah, he said, good uh, Lord, good master, thank you. Tell me, what shall I do? And Jesus told him what? Why do you call me good? There is no one good but who? According to Jesus, are there good and bad people? There are no good bad, bad people. We think so. We think there are good and bad people. According to God, the Bible says there is no one righteous. No, not one. So why is Jesus saying good and bad? They think they are good. There is a group of people who think that they are not as bad as the bad people. They think they are good. These people come into the church and many might be sitting right here today. You see, friends, we have to understand what we really are before we can really appreciate the righteousness of Christ. What category of people do you think the man was who didn't have the wedding garment on? He thought he was good. <laughs> the king doesn't care good or bad. The king knows everybody needs a garment. Everybody needs a garment. That means everybody is bad. But some don't think they're so bad. That man was one, one of them. And uh, we know the example of Paul. He was one man who really exemplifies this for us very well. Paul, and just quickly here, talks about how he is a Jew, a son of a Jew, and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he says, as touching the righteousness of the law, I was, what? Blameless. How many people here today, in their inmost soul, congratulate themselves 
at the end of the day, that is touching the righteousness of the Lord. Today, they were blameless. Thank you, Lord. Blameless. We do that. It's in our nature. We congratulate ourselves. Uh, it would do us well to read the parable or the story of the publican who went in the synagogue to pray to God and he congratulated himself. He said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this mad man. I am really good. It's dangerous to think that some people are good and some are bad. That's a self-deception. That's an incredible deception. Paul says, as touching the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. But then one thing happened. He says, what things were gained to me, those I counted, lost for Christ. He realized there was a deeper problem. And then he did something. Let's go to Philippians 3. Let's just look at that quickly. We're running out of time. Just a few more minutes. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 9, in renouncing this, he says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from where? Of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul came to a point where he recognized that his righteousness is filthy rags and he renounced it. He says, I don't want that anymore. I want the righteousness which comes from God by faith, that complete righteousness. Are we wearing the same garment today? Or are we wearing the garment which is called in the scriptures, the filthy rags? Are we depending on something that we have done or are doing successfully and putting our security in that? If that is the case, my brother, my sister, let me warn you, wake up before it's too late. The righteousness, which is of the law, you might think yourself blameless, but it's only until you recognize, like Paul, that you need to renounce that. That is filthy rags. We don't see that very clearly, of course, but that is the case. You see, this is really the problem that we have. Because many times in our journey, it always happens. We talk, last night the comment was made as well. We talk about faith and works, and we talk about walking with Christ, but somewhere, somehow along the journey, we take our eyes off Jesus, and we become fixated with our works. Isn't that right? No. Somewhere along the way, we, we might start off well, and we are, our eyes are on Jesus, it's great, but some, somehow along the way, we took our eyes off, we got distracted, and we focused on Works. I want to tell you something that might shock you a little bit. I don't believe in faith and works. You see, we think of faith and works as two things. There is faith, okay, I believe in Jesus, now I need to do the works. And we leave Jesus over here. Brothers and sisters, real faith works. Real faith is a working faith, but in our mind we have this concept sometimes that there is faith. And don't forget the works, brother. I'm not knocking the works, but you understand what I mean? It's in our mind, it's separate, and we think faith is here, that's Christ, thank you, thank you very much, Lord, and we go and we get busy working, and we get so busy working that we forget about Jesus, because we're so busy trying to produce some righteousness to bring to the wedding feast. Amen. And you know what that makes us? It makes us miserable, 
It makes us sad. It makes us hard to get along with. It makes us envious. It makes us backbiters. It makes us harbor evil thoughts and surmisings. That's what's happening. Brothers and sisters, to God, this is sickening. This is the problem of Laodicea, isn't it? The faithful and true witness tells Laodicea you're naked. What does Laodicea think? They don't have a clue. They think they're fine. That's our problem today, brothers and sisters. We're naked. We don't have the righteousness of Christ. But we think we have some righteousness. We wouldn't be here otherwise. We are trusting in which righteousness? Our own. This is our eternal problem. And the fruit of this problem is manifest in the discord and the disunity among the brethren. Amen. That means that the counsel of the true and faithful witness is really true. This is the problem of, of uh, Laodicea. This is the problem of Ephesus as well. What did Ephesus do that was bad? Got the first love. Ephesus, what did they do? Who remembers? What, what other thing did they do that was bad? That's the only thing. You know, Jesus commended them on their works. He says, I know your works. I know your patience. I know your long-suffering. I know everything that you're doing. But I have something against you. Just one thing. You have lost your first love. They were still working, weren't they? They were still doing great things. And so everything was fine. And you know what the danger was for Ephesus? Is it because you have lost your first love? If you don't repent and do the first works, and that first works is really to return to the first love. What does Jesus say he will do? I will remove your candlestick from its place. That's what happened to that man, isn't that right? He was removed from his place. But Lord, he was doing all these other things. God says, no, it cannot have one thread of human devising. Brothers and sisters, this is really serious. I just pray that the Lord is Touching your hearts like he touched my hearts as I was preparing for this. Because God wants us to know that without Christ, we are totally destitute. And I tell you what, according to the faithful and true witness, most of us are really without Christ. And I'm not saying this is something to be happy about. It's a sad fact. But unless we wake up and realize the fact, we are not going to do anything about it. Most of us are really without Christ. We have our own righteousness. We trust in our own righteousness and we feel good about ourselves and we are in deep, deep trouble. Do you know that Laodicea makes God sick? You realize that? God looks on Laodicea and he feels sick. He feels like throwing up. That's what we look like, brothers and sisters. All of us. This is serious. Righteousness by faith is not just a, a doctrine that we know all the words about and we know all the lingo and all the terminology right. It's a life-changing experience. Unless you, unless you have righteousness by faith in your experience and it's manifesting the fruits, I invite you to examine really where you are. I really invite you to do that. See, righteousness is... What, what is righteousness? How do we define righteousness? Righteousness is what? Doing what's right. Now that's true in part. Maybe this is where our problem is. Righteousness is indeed right doing, but can we do right? Righteousness is first being made right.
right. And then you are able to do right. The servant of the Lord says, you must be good before you can do good. And this is our problem. Righteousness is good doing. I will do good. I will be good. That's called righteousness by works. That's the righteousness that Paul was producing. Do you see the difference? Do you understand what I'm talking about? It's a big difference. You see, brothers and sisters, God must change us completely before we can be acceptable in His sight. That change is putting on the garments of Christ's righteousness. We accept that by faith. We don't do that by obeying the law. You don't put on gar the garments of Christ's righteousness by obeying the law, do you? Is this how you put them on? And yet, most of us are involved in doing that. We better press on here so we can get to lunch on time. I want to challenge you with the final thoughts here. And I really want you to, to just pray in your heart, really examine your heart well. How is it, my brother and my sister, in your walk today? Are you clothed or are you naked? Is your Christian experience a miserable experience? And if so, then what does that mean? Because the Bible says, in His presence is fullness of joy. Isn't that right? The Bible called the garment of righteousness, it's a garment of praise. It's a garment of thanksgiving, it's a garment of joy. This is what I'm asking, if you are naked or if you are clothed today. You see, Ephesus lost their first love and they reverted to the human disease of self-righteousness. And Laodicea has the same problem. We do good things and we think much of ourselves, but Christ <coughs> is where? Outside Laodicea. So that means His righteousness is where? Outside. <coughs> My brother and my sister, I want to ask you a question. Are you judgmental? We think there and think no. But are you really judgmental? Do you sit on Sabbath and examine other people? Too often. Okay, some people are honest. What does the righteousness of Christ do with judgmentalism? See, brothers and sisters, we really need to be honest with ourselves. We are so self-deceived. Heaven is in shock at us. Are we bitter and angry in our hearts towards brothers and sisters? We have evil surmising. Is that you? So are you wearing the garment or not? And yet we think we're okay. We think like that man that we're okay. Is there strife and envy and hatred among us? If there is, then what are we doing about it? Don't you know that these things keep us out of the kingdom? I want you to picture in your mind if the doors here today were shut. Christ comes in with his angels. And Christ is going to examine right now today who is wearing a wedding garment and who is not. And everyone who is not wearing a wedding garment is going to be cast out. What will happen to you right now? What will happen to me right now? Are we harboring unforgiveness towards our brethren? This brother hurt you. Maybe he did something awful. Maybe this sister said something bad. But we were really unforgiving. We're bitter about it. So much so that, you know what? I don't talk to this brother anymore. 
This sister here, I, she goes her own way, I go my own way. I don't talk to her. Brothers and sisters, is this what the righteousness of Christ looks like? Do you understand what I'm saying? Christ is looking to see who has his righteousness. You see, he wants to heal us. He's not telling, I'm not telling you this so that you feel bad about uh, yourself. Perhaps I am, actually. <laughs> you know, this is the, the message. The message is meant not to get us to feel good about ourselves. I'm not here to make you feel good about yourself. I want you to feel good about Jesus Christ. Amen. That's who we are to uplift. We have been feeling good about ourselves for too long, and it has all kinds of problems for us. Are you at variance with your brethren? Is that what righteousness looks like? And what are we doing about it? Are you stubborn? Righteous people are stubborn, aren't they? You see, friends, we, we have this, this fatal deception in our minds. We have all these characteristics, and yet we think we are righteous. So, well, brother, I keep the law. I'll tell you something that, that's uh, a dangerous fact. We have become legalists, keeping the law right. But our hearts are destitute of the love of Jesus. We don't love our brethren. Our hearts are destitute of the peace and the joy of Jesus. And we have, we have trouble loving our brethren. Tell me, how in the world do you think that you love your enemies when your own brothers and sisters you have problems with? We think, you know, we think we love our enemies. We read that yesterday. Yeah, I love my enemies. I've never met them. I don't know who they are, but I love them. But my brother and sister, oh, no, no. See the self-deception that we bring brothers and sisters? This isn't righteousness by faith. We need to put on the wedding garment. What are you wearing? We've looked too often to our own righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ. That's why the Bible says we are to look to the author and finisher of our faith. And I want to challenge you with a thought, make a decision today, seeing that we talked about these things. I want to, it's time to make a decision. And I want you to do that decision before the Lord as you examine your hearts in light of the things that we have been sharing. Because this is the greatest need that we as God's people need. It's the righteousness of Christ by faith. The whole lot. Not part and we contribute. Not most of it and we add a little bit. But it's the complete righteousness of Christ. And the fact that we don't have it, it should alarm us and drive us to our knees as a people that we might obtain it and not let go of it. You see, we might have started off well with Christ, but somewhere along the way we've lost the way. we lost the look at Christ. And we start looking to our own righteousness instead of Christ's righteousness. We say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, I'll take it from here. And that does not suffice. That does not suffice at all. Brothers and sisters, the righteousness of Jesus is peace and joy evermore. It really is. The righteousness of Christ has no room for envy and for strife. It has no room for backbiting and for tail-bearing. It has no room for gossip. It has no room for an unforgiving, bitter spirit. If this is you today, you've lost sight of Jesus. You need to be reconnected. And according to the true witness, most of us are in this, this 
sad state of affairs today. We need the garments of salvation, which is joy and peace. Trusting to what we do is so natural to us. And yet, where is the fruit of righteousness? Doesn't the Bible say we need to break up our fallow ground till the Lord come and rain righteousness on us? I want the Spirit to break up that fallow ground in our hearts today. Many of us really need some waking up. So brother and sister, I want you to ponder well these words. And I want you to make a decision today based on what you, we have said. Decision time has come. It's one thing to preach and then one thing to decide. It's important to decide. And I don't want to leave this opportunity for you not to make a decision today to choose the righteousness of Christ if you have let go of it, to return to the Lord before leaving this place. I don't want us to leave this place naked, without a garment, without, without a wedding garment on. If you have been involved in gossiping and backbiting and bitterness and envy and variance among your brethren, you really need the righteousness of Jesus afresh. If you have been holding off and away from your brothers and sisters, you don't get along well, you need some righteousness from Jesus so that it will enable you to be like Jesus. Too many of us, brothers and sisters, are really, really legalistic. If we're really honest with ourselves. We keep the law. From sunset to sunset, we keep the Sabbath, but we fail to worship God in our hearts. We really fail. We don't have the Spirit. Christ alone is righteous. We can't keep the law of ourselves. Only Christ is righteous. So I want to invite you to come to the front if, I want you to think about this carefully. If this is you, and you have lost your love for Jesus, and you have lost your first love, and you desire the righteousness which is of Christ, I want to invite you to come forward and to receive the righteousness of Christ as we close in prayer. If there's anyone like that here today, I invite you in the name of Jesus. I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, because people are looking. But brothers and sisters, this is a life and death matter. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is standing asking if you will receive His complete righteousness, and if you will renounce your own righteousness. If there's anyone like that here today, I want to invite you to come to the front that we might receive afresh the righteousness of Jesus and put away the evil of our own righteousness. I want us to pray now as well, and I want to really ask the Lord that He might bless us, because Jesus desires for us to have this blessing. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.